This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Speaking of Philadelphia, in the city in which I currently sit, some 241 years ago, a group of leaders sat down to write a document that would be the basis for the break from the British Empire. And the Declaration of Independence is one of our signature documents which started the process of having the United States of America. But it was also, according to Yale University professor Steve Pincus, a document that outlined the failures of British rule as well as what they had not done to promote the these new colonies and its potential new level of prosperity. Pincus is a professor of history at Yale University, and he has authored the book, The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government. And it's a pleasure to have Professor Pincus joining us on the, uh, on the show right now. Steve, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, this is in part, uh, from what I was reading from other accounts, uh, kind of a re-review of the Declaration of Independence on your part, correct? That's right. Yeah, I mean, I start from the perspective uh, that all of the founders were British Americans before they were Americans, and so I think about uh, their engagement with British political debate. So that's the kind of starting point of my revision. So what is it that that you really—I mean, you're talking about what— a lot of things surrounding the time uh, of the Revolutionary War. And, and I guess the the question is, from the belief of some of the people that were really at the core of the founding of the Declaration, of the writing of it, uh, they felt that, that they were given much short shrift in terms of what they were doing and what they could do as colonies of the British Empire? Right. So, so um, I mean, the way to sort of think about it is that they were writing the Declaration in the, in the context of a British imperial debt crisis that had been going on since the 1760s. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the great Seven Years' War, what we call the French and Indian War, the British government was, was in debt. Um, and throughout the a huge amount of sovereign debt, and just like uh, in the 21st century, there was a vibrant debate about how to deal with the debt. Um, and the... the uh, governments, the, the ministers, the prime ministers, uh, who tended to dominate British politics after the accession of George III, were people who thought the best way to pay down the debt were to pursue austerity measures, to stop spending money, um, and to tax uh, the people who uh, couldn't vote in parliamentary elections, the colonies, uh, 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 the, the colonies in North America, but also Ireland uh, uh, and to some degree uh, India. And their opponents argued that the best way to get out of the debt, in fact, was actually to try to stimulate the economy, and in particular to stimulate the economy, uh, the most vibrant sectors of the economy, which in their view uh, were the colonies. So they thought it was best yeah. to sort of subsidize growth uh, in the colonies. And that had been the sort of long-term uh, uh, policy of the British Empire up until 1760. And so what the, what the American colonists were complaining about uh, was, in fact, that all of these kinds of subsidies to support growth in the colonies, which were subsidizing industry, subsidizing immigration, uh, helping uh, uh, open up trade for the American colonies, all of that had come to an end in 1760, and they were demanding, uh, in the first instance, they wanted the British government to restore these things, and when it became clear that the British government was not going to do that, then they uh, turned to independence as the, as the second best option. 
and this was also obviously for a lot of people that that know this period in time. Uh, this is at the uh, really at one of the heights of the British Empire uh, around the world. Correct? Absolutely. So, the, so the British Empire. I mean, what, it's important to realize that that uh, not only was, were there British colonies in North America and in the West Indies, and it should be uh, realized that places like Jamaica were incredibly prosperous in the 18th century, but also and incredibly importantly, uh, there was a new massive British Empire uh, based in Bengal and India. And Bengal at the time was the most advanced manufacturing place in the world. So um, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a global empire uh, very, very much at this time. And it, but it was a global empire that needed to uh, get itself out, uh, out of debt. Um, so, yeah. Is it, is it safe to say that if, if the British government had not kind of changed that philosophy on and around 1760 and they had worked more with the colonies, that maybe the path of what we saw through the revolution may may have been different. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think there's 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 two reasons to believe this. First, in the declaration, it's uh, declaration itself, um, the the founders dated all of the problems that they experienced not to the beginning of the british empire but to when george the 3rd came came to the uh came to uh came to the throne right. so for their from their perspective everything had changed then so their rhetoric was very much that had things had the british empire continued to govern the way it had before 1760 everything would have been fine and the second reason to believe this is that there was a simultaneous revolution or a movement towards revolution going on in ireland with almost identical complaints uh, uh, of the Americans, that there, that there have been too many restrictions on trade, uh, that the government uh, was interfering in, in uh, internal taxation, that they were taxing them directly, they stopped subsidizing their growth. Um, uh, but the timing was slightly different, um, and uh, uh, everything sort of came to a head in 1782, six years after the Declaration of Independence. Um, and Ireland declared legislative independence and judicial independence, but they didn't break away from the British Empire, in large part because the government, the ministry that had been governing uh, 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 since the 1760s fell in 1782, um, and the new government made the concessions. And at that point, all of the, de- uh, the desire for independence in Ireland stopped. And, and the Americans, the North Americans, were extremely conscious that, these, that their cause was the same. In fact, George Washington wrote a letter to Henry Grattan, the leader of the, of, of the Irish movement, and said, your cause is our cause, understanding the parallels. So there are two good reasons to think that had the government not pursued these, uh, these reasons, things would have ended up differently. First, the declaration, in the declaration of the, uh, itself, the founders said so. And secondly, the parallel revolutionary movement in Ireland came to an end uh, when, when the British, uh, the British ministry fell and a new government pursued different policies. Steve Pink is uh, joining us. He is the author of the book, The Heart of the Declaration, the Founders' Case for an Activist Government. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. One of the things that that you do get into, and and it's kind of interesting because some of these are are very important topics right now as we speak. You mentioned immigration uh, as something that was very important back in that day. Trade, obviously, was something that they talked about. And and another thing which has been, you know, in and around this, uh, this government, this country for the last decade since the recession uh, was the issue of stimulus. That's right. That's right. So let me say something about about immigration. So one of the things that um, uh, um, the British Empire had done until 1760 was to actually uh, uh, try to support immigration uh, into Britain, into the empire, particularly into North America. Right. But uh, and and they've been spending you know 
tens of thousands of pounds uh, a year, I mean, which was a huge amount of money in those days, um, uh, to pay for immigrants to come to the New World. They made it really easy to naturalize. Um, and in the dec- declaration itself, um, the founders castigated, blamed George III for endeavoring to prevent, and this is a quote, the population of these states. Um, they, uh, they complained uh, that he had obstructed the laws for naturalizing foreigners, and that's in the declaration. And they complained that he'd refused to pass laws to encourage migrations hither. Um, so in the declaration itself, um, the founders thought that one of the reasons to declare uh, to declare independence was precisely because George III was pursuing an anti-immigrant policy. Right. So they thought that the American government should should uh, support immigrants because they thought uh, immigrants uh, would help to stimulate economic growth. Well, and, and on the trade issue, uh, you talk about the relationship that uh, you know the colonies wanted to have. Uh, with uh, the Latin American uh, territories, uh, and and George the Third kind of blocked that, correct? That's right. Uh, so George the Third. So again, I mean, the the hopes of the the colonists for for good reasons was were to have free or at least freer trade uh, with Spanish America. Spanish America at the time was, was extremely uh, prosperous because of the silver mines in Mexico and Peru. Um, and because they, uh, their economy is so focused on mining, um, they, they had a huge demand for foodstuffs and for uh, a variety of manufactured goods, especially uh, metalwares, uh, metal uh, pottery, um, and, and textiles. Um, and uh, the colonists, by contrast, didn't have much coin. And so the, the coin that circulated in North America in the 18th century were largely Spanish pieces of eight that they gained by trading with Spanish America. Right. So they wanted to open up, uh, open up trade. Uh, but in fact, in the 1760s, the, the government had sought to restrict trade, had say, sort of seen uh, a kind of British first trade policy, um, uh, and had uh, prevented trade, prevented the colonies for, uh, from trading directly, uh, uh, in some cases because they thought there would be unfavorable trade balances. Um, and in fact, in the declaration, the founders said what they wanted was a free commerce uh, uh, with, with all, uh, what they said in the declaration was they complained about that George III had cut off our trade with all parts of the world. Right. And Benjamin Franklin, one of the people who wrote the five, the Committee of Five, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, said, uh, demanded what he called a free commerce with all the rest of the world. And in fact, one of the first things when, when uh, the Declaration of Independence was drawn up, there were a series of other measures which the Second Continental Congress demanded right. or drew up at the same time. And one of them was, this, was the so-called Model Commercial Treaty, um, which was to set up free trade relations with anybody who would be willing to sign it. Um, so there was a real commitment to free trade uh, um, uh, among the founders. And they complained very much that George III's government had pursued a policy of tariff barriers and protectionism. I, I want to go back to the, to the debt uh, issue yeah. that the, the British Empire was dealing with at that time. And, and I think a lot of people would suggest that, you know, part and parcel, because of the fact that the British Empire was so massive at that point, that that's probably one of the main reasons that they probably were in a debt crisis, correct? Well, yeah. I mean, so so uh, I mean, indirectly. I mean, it's, it's right. the the size of the size of the empire. Yes, I mean, it, it was expensive to to govern it, but the the massive increase in the debt took place. Uh, uh, one can trace this over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, the debt, uh, British debt, increased uh, mostly during times of war, and the biggest jump. 
in the in the British debt was in the so-called French and Indian War, or Seven Years' War of 1756 to 1763. Um, so that that's why the debt grew dramatically. Now, yes, of course, it became uh, it was difficult to decrease exp- uh, 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 British governmental expenditures as quickly when you had. Uh, you know, a huge empire to govern. Right. But in fact, uh, one of the the policies that the that the post uh, uh, post seventeen sixty governments pursued, the uh, governments after George III came to the crown, was to spend as little money on the empire as possible, and to to always insist that the, that the colonies pay uh, uh, England or pay Br- uh, Britain uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, so, in fact, there were millions of pounds which were supposed to come in every year from from. India from the new colonies of Bengal, um, much less was expected from North America. But the but the British government's view was that they should be spending less money governing North America than North America should send to Britain in taxes. We are joined by Steve Pincus, who is a professor of history at Yale University. He is the author of a new book called The Heart of the Declaration, The Founders' Case for an Activist Government, 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in, give us a comment. Or if you can't get to the phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I had seen that, that you had recently done a piece on time, in time, I should say, uh, on uh, the founders and how they would react to the current president of the United States, Donald Trump. Take us into that a little bit. Um, sure. I mean, that piece was written, uh, you know, uh, over a year ago now. Um, but uh, the the points that I was trying to make then were that some of the issues that Donald Trump had, uh, had been raising, uh, uh, at that point I was sort of focused on immigration, uh, trade, uh, and also ways of dealing with the debt seemed somewhat inimical to the principles of the founders. I mean, the founders were absolutely committed uh, uh, to immigration because they thought the best way to make uh, North America prosperous uh, was to uh, increase the labor force, uh, especially I mean, the more people in the country, the lower the price of labor would be, uh, meaning that there would be more stuff that would be produced. Uh, and they thought that was good for the economy as a whole. They also were absolutely insistent that America uh, be integrated, that, that British North America be integrated into the world economy through trade, um, because they thought, uh, they thought it was you know, the best way, to, certainly the best way in the short term to get, to get specie, to get money to spend, but also because uh, they thought uh, it was through international trade uh, um, that uh, prosperity could grow most, because then you could sell the goods that you had, you would import goods from other people, um, uh, uh, from other countries, and that would be the best way, ultimately, in the long term, uh, to stimulate growth. And their, their view uh, was very much that they could sell, that in, uh, uh, when they were still part of the British Empire, that they could sell British manufactured goods to Spanish America right. much more cheaply uh, than anybody else, and that would lead to, uh, to profits. And they thought in the, in the medium term, uh, uh, after independence, that they could themselves um, begin to develop manufacturing, uh, which would, could then be exported to Spanish America for huge profits, which is why Alexander Hamilton uh, in 1790 and 91 wrote his, wrote his essays on manufacturing. Uh, the the role of of George Washington in this process obviously is is a very important one. But I, I mean, when you think about what happened with the revolution and and what happened actually in the prior times, 
what role could Washington maybe have have played to change the path of this? Or uh, I mean, obviously he was so involved in the uh, in the movement forward to to try and get freedom uh, for the then United or soon to be United States. I mean, could his role have been different if things had changed around 1760? Yes. Well, I mean, without question. I mean, George Washington. Uh, I mean, the, the George Washington had been uh, a military officer uh, serving the British Army in the, uh, in the Seven Years' War. He was somebody who uh, was a great admirer, as were, in fact, most people uh, in British North America in the 1760s. I mean, so. Um, before the policy turned, uh, uh, during the French and Indian War, uh, after the great victories, uh, 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 British victories in the Seven Years' War, um, most uh, people living in North America thought that the British Empire was something that the world had never seen before, an empire for liberty. Uh, and that's what George Washington uh, and many others thought, thought they were supporting. Um, and I- indeed, in the 1760s, when the British government started pursuing these new economic policies, these policies of austerity, uh, not helping the growth of the colonies, um, Washington uh, was in very close contact with, uh, with uh, British critics of uh, the policies that were being pursued, um, and he, you know, he sort of adopted their economic perspective that the best way to stimulate the growth for the empire as a whole was to was to uh, encourage the development of the most dynamic parts of the economy, the colonies. So um, uh, the point which I, which I'm making here is that Washington uh, was somebody who was not predisposed for independence uh, to independence uh, by any means. It was the, it was clearly the policies that have been pursued after 1760 that led him from being one of the greatest enthusiasts of the British Empire uh, to somebody who who wanted independence. Mm-hmm. And it, the telling point comes in when he received a copy of the Declaration of Independence. He was uh, uh, with his troops uh, in Manhattan yeah. watching uh, uh, the British Army disembark in Staten Island. The Redcoats disembark in uh, Staten. Island. He read the Declaration of Independence out loud to his troops, and they, you know, uh, as one did in those days, uh, uh, huzzahed, shot off their guns in celebration. Right. And then he said to them, he said to them, see, this shows that we're fighting to defend the British Constitution against those guys who have perverted the British Constitution. So hmm. here is this guy who get, reads the Declaration of Independence and understands the, Brit- the Declaration of Independence as a defense of the British Constitution the way it was meant to be. And what he meant by that is, this is a document defending the British Constitution the way before it had been perverted by George III and his ministers after 1760. So he was not somebody who, who was, uh, you know, want, uh, was an America first kind of guy. He was somebody who was very committed to a set of policies and ideas which he associated with the British Empire, and he lamented that the British Empire had given up on those ideas. Well, uh, let me ask you this, because obviously with the changes that, that occurred around 1760 and, you know, the mind set of the British government, uh, as you got closer and closer to what ended up being the Revolutionary War, did you have uh, elements of the British government that understood, as you kind of lay out, that that to a degree there were business elements uh, as to why uh, there was a, a, an unrest in, in the new colonies? And it was not just uh, you know, people, you know, kind of lashing out the way that a lot of people believe that the the Revolutionary War was. 
Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, one of the really interesting things is, I mean, so British politics in, in the later 18th century, like, you know, our politics today, was deeply, deeply partisan, right? There were deep party divisions. Right. Um, and the opposition party, uh, uh, those who wanted different policies, those who wanted uh, freer trade, those who wanted to continue subsidizing immigration, et cetera, were, they had huge support among the business interests in Britain because these were the people who were manufacturing, say, textiles uh, in, in Manchester or nails uh, and metalwares in places like Sheffield and Birmingham who realized that their, their biggest market and their most dynamic market for these goods were British, was British North America, were the colonies. So they thought these policies were uh, of taxing the colonies directly without their consent was a disaster for Britain on purely business terms, because if you took the money out of the pockets of the colonists, they weren't going to be buying British manufactured goods. Um, so there was, right. there was absolutely uh, uh, a, a business interest which was arguing against the policies that have been pursued since 1760 in Britain. Steve Pincus joining us, the author of the book, The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I mean, it is amazing when you think about the fact that, I mean, this was a document that was signed such a long period of time ago, yet the importance of that document to this country still to this day is unbelievably important, and in many cases— Unfortunately, not all. Uh, it is it is at the core of what this country is still about. Oh, absolutely, and 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 this has been. I mean, I I mean, I uh, you know, at key moments in American history, in moments of crisis, um, the Declaration is what is what Americans, American politicians, but also Americans more generally have turned to. And of course, one needs only uh, uh, need only recall the Gettysburg Address that Abraham Lincoln sure. uh, delivered, which was in fact a gloss on the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and you know, Lincoln said over and over and over again that he believed that none of his principles that all he derived all of his principles from the Declaration of Independence, which he understood as our founding constitutional document. And of course, you know, every year on the 4th of July, uh, you know, every politician with her or his fault, yeah. uh, you know, uh, gives a speech on the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Um, so I think it is, and it should remain uh, our, our touchstone. And I just, I mean, my, my point is merely uh, that we should pay more attention to what's actually in the Declaration of Independence, of what they were complaining about and what they hoped for. I would think to a degree, and maybe you do this with your classes there at Yale, is really to have that deeper understanding of what the story was behind the Declaration and not just have the narrative of the Declaration was, you know, it was obviously the document that allowed the then or soon to be United States to have its freedom from British, British tyranny. That's absolutely right, and and again, I mean, uh, I mean, I think it's really important to understand, and I think, and as as you say, I think it's also really important to understand the economics behind or the economic ideas behind the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, no, I mean, I I think um, I think is the sort of the big takeaway is not that the Americans thought that the British government was doing too much, that they were interfering too much in their lives, um, but that they were uh, doing too little to support the prosperity uh, and de uh, defend uh, and develop uh, the North American colonies, or, in, if, if you will, um, that they shifted from uh, supporting the economy of uh, 
of uh, British America uh, to uh, to trying to sort of see British America as merely as a resource to pay down uh, to pay down the national debt. Yeah, there was also the element I, I I would imagine even back then because of the wealth and and the types of uh, of bridges in society uh, the the concerns around inequality financial inequality uh, oh. in the in the colony not necessarily between men and women but between kind of the one percent and the ninety nine percent that we see talked about quite a bit today. Oh, absolutely. So one of the one of the key key elements of of the thinking of of uh, not only uh, the American founders but their political allies in Britain, was that the key driving force in the economy, that to have a dynamic economy, yes, you needed producers producing important things, but you also needed a broad base of consumers who were buying those goods. And this was especially true in a world, of course, of protectionism, when other countries, especially other European states and their competing uh, empires, uh, closed uh, 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 closed markets to British or uh, British or Brit- and British American goods. Um, then the biggest uh, market that you were going to have was going to be the domestic market. And so their view was that you needed consumers. But of course, the more inequality you had, the more uh, radical inequality you had, the fewer consumers that you would really have in the marketplace. Because you know, if if uh, uh, if only the wealthiest one percent had had money and had uh, consumer wherewithal. That sure, they would uh, buy a lot of luxury goods, but yeah. that would pale in comparison to having everyday people all you know buying new clothes all the time. For example, Steve, great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Steve Pincus. The uh, book is The Heart of the Declaration, The Founder's Case for an Activist Government. It is available in bookstores and online now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.